0: Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Let's hear the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters, separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water from under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so, God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good, then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit, with seeds in it, according to their various kinds, And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day, and God said, "Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky." So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Some of you may remember uh, that three or four uh, years ago now, I preached through, or we worked our way through, the entire book of Revelation. The last book in our Bibles. Uh, The theme of which I suggested was, Jesus wins. He will be the victor, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The book of Revelation helps us to know and understand where this world is heading. If Jesus is the ultimate victor, then I need to make sure that I'm on his side. On his team. If I'm to share in his victory. But of course, to fully appreciate where this world is going, I also need to understand where it has come from. And indeed, where I myself have come from. I am persuaded... That one of the ploys of the evil one is to cut you and me off from our beginnings and our end. To muddy the waters in these two all-important areas. So that our focus becomes solely about the here and now. Forget the beginning, forget the end, so focus here and now. To force people like you and me to feel the need to hold on to that which we can see and know and touch here and now. That foreign holiday that some of us have recently enjoyed. Or our newly renovated homes. A husband or a girlfriend. My career, that beautiful sunset or that bottle of Merlot you so enjoy. In short, I believe it is no accident that the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and much of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, are both shrouded in confusion and in controversy for many people even Christians. We come to these parts of the Bible, to these parts of the Scriptures with 1,001 questions that prevent us From truly hearing what God wants to say to us in these parts of the Bible. It is for this reason that I want to spend much of this autumn term preaching through the early chapters of Genesis. I'm not sure how far we'll get, but I want to try to deal with the text on its own terms to give us all a fair chance of hearing what God wants to say to us in these chapters. So I want to ask for your patience with me, and to put aside your questions about evolution and cosmology and the age of the earth and the meaning of the days in Genesis chapter 1, it's not that these are unimportant questions, it's just that, as I've already said, they can distract us from hearing what the Bible is and isn't saying. But before we go any further, one question that we need to explore is this. Why the book of Genesis matters? Why does the book of Genesis matter? Well, in the ancient world, it was not unusual to name a book after the opening uh, word of the book itself. Well, the very first word in the book of Genesis translates into three words in our English uh, versions. In the beginning. And when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to uh, Greek, that word was translated as Genesis. A word that means origin or source. And this has been described by one author as an exquisitely perfect title for the book. That is because everything we know about God, creation, ourselves, and our need for rescue, we find... In the book of Genesis. Therefore the book of Genesis. Matters a great deal. It provides us with the theological pillars. On which the rest of the Bible stands. Genesis is a foundational book. It is foundational. Because it is all about our beginnings. Yours and mine. It is foundational. It is foundational to the Torah, or the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible. That's the name. The Pentateuch is the name given to the first five books in the Old Testament. So, for example, you cannot make sense of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, the second book in the Pentateuch, without Genesis and the promises made to a man called Abraham that you find in the book of Genesis. Genesis is also foundational to the rest of the Old Testament because many of its concepts and ideas are further developed in the rest of the Old Testament. But Genesis is also foundational to the New Testament part of the Bible. There are several New Testament references to characters and events taken from Genesis chapters 1 to 11, for example. Consider the following. Luke chapter 3 mentions the generations from Adam to Abraham as ancestors of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, Paul bases his understanding of sin and death on the actions of Adam. His argument makes no sense if Adam was not a real person since Adam is compared to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again describes Adam as a real person whose sin had very real consequences for the rest of humanity, that is you and I. This makes no sense if Adam were not a real person. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul bases his teaching about the relative roles of men and women in the church on the actions of Adam and Eve, and the order in which they are created, as recorded in Genesis chapter 2. In Matthew 19, Jesus bases his teaching about marriage on God's word to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Also, in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, Jesus refers to Noah and the flood as if they were real historical events and people. Likewise in Hebrews 11 in 1 John 3 and the little letter of Jude the writer the writers all treat Abel Cain Enoch and Noah as real historical people and not as mere metaphors in 1 Peter 3 verse 20 Paul treats the flood as a real sorry, Peter treats the flood as a real historical event With a real man, Noah, and literally eight people who were saved in and through the ark. Noah's ark, we all know it. In his second letter, uh, Peter again describes Noah as a real historical person. Finally, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter describes those who deny the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As those who forgot, who forget that the flood happened long ago. Peter clearly implies that since the ancient flood was a real event, in a similar way, the second coming of Jesus Christ will also one day be a real historical event. Collectively, uh, these references indicate that Genesis chapters 1-11 to are not myth, but rather historically true events. Literally, even if the author sometimes used some figurative language to describe events. Every New Testament book bar three contain allusions to Genesis. Of the 50 chapters that make up the book of Genesis, only seven are not quoted or cited in the New Testament. More than half of the 200 New Testament allusions to Genesis are found within the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And 63 of those refer to the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Finally, on several occasions, the Lord Jesus Christ himself quoted from or referred to people and or events from the book of Genesis. Genesis. So much so that arguably it is impossible to call into question the historical reliability of the book of Genesis without at the same time calling into question the reliability of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The fact is, the New Testament authors believed that the generations from Adam to Abraham were real historical people and that the flood really happened so much so that it has been suggested that if Genesis were ripped out of our Bibles then the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament would become incomprehensible you just wouldn't understand what was going on in the Bible but that brings me to another related question which is this what is your view of this book we make so much of here at Grace Just Broccoli what is your view of the scriptures see for all Christians the testimony of scripture must be foundational in determining our position on any and every issue the Bible is our sole or ultimate authority in terms of our beliefs and how we conduct ourselves if we claim to be Christians (coughs) This means it must have value in speaking of physical as well as spiritual realities. So, can I ask you again, what is your view of Scripture? What's your view of the Bible? Now, now I ask this question because for some people, science reigns supreme in life, whereas the Bible is simply the collective opinions of flawed human beings and not. Revealed truth from God himself. And so for them, only science is completely reliable. Its insight into reality are therefore to be accepted. While the theology of the Bible, what the Bible says needs to be amended in keeping with scientific discovery. This view sees science as the best way of discovering truth about the natural world and about God. Because it has a low view of this book, the Bible. And I wonder, is that how you see things? For other people, the scriptures contained revealed truth from God. But only those things that it teaches about saving faith is necessarily true. That's what they would say. So such people think the Bible may contain errors... In what it says about the nature of the world. For example in the areas of science or history. And so while continuing to believe that God can intervene. In the world outside the normal rules of science. Those who hold this view. Look to science to describe the way the world works. In practice. They do not believe that the Bible is infallible. They do not see it as the infallible word of God. Whose authority must be accepted in all matters. They don't believe that all truth is God's truth. And that truth discovered through science is still truth about God. Others like myself believe the scripture in its entirety to be the revealed truth from God. It is therefore entirely without error in everything that it affirms. Whether specifically relating to matters of faith or not. The Bible not only does not contain errors, as the infallible word of God, it cannot contain errors. This conviction means I will always seek to interpret what the Bible says about the the world faithfully... Refusing to accept any perspective from science or any field of study that directly conflicts with the scriptures. Unless, of course, it can be shown that my interpretation of the scriptures, what the scriptures are saying, can be shown to be flawed in some way. At the same time, I believe as a Christian, I must be careful not to cling to a particular theological position if in fact it is not supported by a careful reading of the scriptures. Or, if it is only one of a number of possible interpretations of that particular text. See, scripture, the Bible, is unchanging. But my understanding of the scriptures, my understanding of the Bible, must be constantly open to revision, to reform, to change. The truth of this book is unchanging. My understanding of it must be open to change because no one's that clever. This is how one group of uh, evangelicals uh, put it. <coughs> It's long, but it's worth reading. We affirm that scripture in its entirety is inerrant, without error, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that biblical infallibility and inherency are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes exclusive of assertions in the field of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of scripture On creation and the flood. I think that's a very helpful and right statement. Now as you know, the very first verse of the Bible reads as follows. In the beginning, you can see it on page 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're not going to get further than that verse today, I'm sorry to say. Because this one verse alone is packed with all sorts of implications. And so the first thing I think God is saying to us through this one verse is this. It's not mind blowing, but it's this nevertheless. There was a beginning. There was a beginning. Verse 1, Genesis 1, verse 1. The very first word in the book of Genesis, translated as in the beginning, alerts us to the fact that the absolute beginning of all things is a reality. Time, space, matter, energy were all created or had a beginning. Now in the early part of the 20th century, most cosmologists believed in the steady state theory of the universe. This is the theory that the physical universe was without a first cause, a first beginning. And therefore, matter must be eternal, is what they thought. In the words of the famous astronomer Carl Sagan, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. But this theory is now largely discredited, having been replaced by the hot Big Bang theory. And more that's because more recent evidence suggests in keeping, interestingly enough, with Genesis 1 verse 1 that the universe indeed had a beginning. I would suggest this is a good example of why we should be very careful not to invest too much authority in scientific theories. They are constantly being reviewed being modified, or even being discarded. Now, some people have rendered the first verse of Genesis chapter 1 like this. When God began to create the heavens and the earth. Although possible, this alters the meaning of verse 1 quite significantly. It suggests that when God began his creative activity, he used pre-existent material. But it's very likely that we are to read verse 1 as a comprehensive and independent introductory statement. That is, it speaks of the origin of all things and is also a summary of the rest of chapter 1 of Genesis. Now the implications of this are quite hard for finite creatures like you and me with our puny little minds to understand. You see, you and I understand the concept of secondary or relative creation. Let me illustrate. Uh, When uh, we lived in South Africa, uh, we would take our recycled material to our children's pre-primary school. But then it would often come back later uh, with them because at school they would use this pre-existent material to create, well, shall we say debatable works of art or creativity. You know, using toilet rolls and fruit containers and cereal boxes, etc. And and as your children handed to you at the school gate what they'd created, you would say, thank you, sweetheart, and smile. In other words, you would lie and smile while doing it. Well, in verse 1, verse 1 is not referring to this sort of relative or secondary creation. It is referring instead to absolute creation. We are being told that an eternally pre-existent intelligence created all things ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. And this is further supported by the word translated created in verse 1. In the Old Testament, this is a unique word that is never ever used to describe an action by a person, whether male or female. And we find it here in verse 1, and then only at emphatic points in the rest of chapter 1. For example, in the creation of animal life in verse 21, and again in verse 27, during the creation of Adam and Eve. This creative activity that brings all things into being is something which only an infinitely powerful and timeless being can do. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 with me for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11, you'll find it on page 1209 in your church Bibles. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3. This is the way the writer of the letter letter of the Hebrews put it. Hebrews 11, verse 3, page 1209. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that that which is seen was not made out of what was visible. Did you get that? Let me read that again. By faith, based on trust, we understand that the universe was formed, that is everything you can see now, was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was seen or what was visible. Genesis 1 verse 1 is not simply referring to the refashioning of something as in the case of my children's pre-primary school art and craft work. It is rather about establishing the very principle by which things, all things, exist. This being, who by definition must be self-existent because he existed in and of himself before anything else did, in the words of Romans 4 verse 17, is able to call into being things that were not. So the very first thing we are forced to confront in the very first verse of the Bible is that there was a beginning. This universe had a beginning. Absolutely everything you've ever seen with your two eyes had a beginning. It once did not exist. Which suggests that there is a a direction and a purpose behind everything that exists. Which suggests that there is purpose and meaning behind why you exist. That brings me to the second thing that the first verse of the Bible tells us, which is this. God exists and is the creator of everything. Everything. God exists and is the creator of everything. Genesis 1 verse 1 tells us there was a beginning. This universe had an origin which implies an intelligent originator. Who stands behind the original beginning of everything. Presumably we would not know this unless it were revealed to us. Well Genesis 1 verse 1 does not leave us in the dark. We are told that God... Or Elohim. Is that creator. The whole of this chapter. Is about his creative power. The word Elohim. Is used around 30 times. In chapter 1. We find it in almost every verse. Uh, Some Old Testament scholars. Make a big deal. About the fact that God's personal name. Yahweh or Lord in capital letters. Is used exclusively in chapter 2 whereas in chapter 1 the name Elohim or God is used some even suggest uh, that there are two different and contradictory creation accounts in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 as a result Yahweh the Lord is God's personal name and is used in the context of him having a relationship with his people and so it shouldn't surprise us that the author of Genesis uses this more personal name in a chapter that focuses in on the relationship he has with the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, chapter 2. By contrast, in our English Bibles, Elohim is translated as God and is the general name for God and is used in the context of him being creator. It emphasizes that he is distant and powerful He is our awesome and majestic creator. He's far higher than you or I could ever imagine. And that's what the writer wants us to understand in Genesis 1 verse 1 and following. But at this point, uh, some of you may be thinking, well, we want proof that God exists. But the trouble is, airtight proof in these matters is very, very hard to come by. Perhaps at best, all we can say is that there are clues to the existence of God. Firstly, the fact that the universe had a beginning is one possible clue. The anthropic principle is another possible clue. Namely, the idea that the universe seems to have been designed with you and me in mind. Allowing us to develop and to flourish. I mean, there are over 7 billion people Human beings on planet Earth. As far as we know, there are no other living creatures on any of the other planets in all the whole of this universe, as far as we know. Is that just a coincidence? And it's a fact supported by the emphasis we'll find in Genesis chapter 1, as we will see later in this series. The regularity and beauty of nature is another possible clue to God's existence. We can predict an eclipse with pinpoint accuracy. And we can set our watches by the rotation of the earth and its orbit around the sun. And who here has not marvelled at the beautiful sunset or at one of David Attenborough's wildlife documentaries? Sat with mouth open wide, agape. Wow. The fact that we can look up at the stars and contemplate their existence and the possible existence of a higher being is yet another clue, perhaps, to Elohim's existence. Of course, some evolutionists believe that we are hardwired to believe in a God because this helped our ancestors adapt to their environment so they could pass on their genes. So all these clues amount to perhaps just a hill of beans. Nothing. Well, imagine this. Imagine a man has been sentenced to be shot by a firing squad of ten expert marksmen. They fire from six feet away, and yet not one bullet hits the man. It is possible, isn't it, that expert marksmen could miss from close range. And technically, it is possible that all ten could miss at the same time. It would be difficult to prove that they all conspired to miss. Though it might be unreasonable to conclude that they had not. What I mean is, it is technically possible that all these clues prove nothing about the existence of God. That's possible. But I ask you, is that reasonable? Is that a reasonable conclusion to draw? In any case... What I've just said is completely irrelevant because Genesis 1 verse 1 is not in the least bit interested in proving God's existence. I assume that is not because this question is irrelevant or unimportant. It's just that Genesis chapter 1 has a different agenda. You may find that a little frustrating and even exasperating but I take it the questions Genesis 1 are addressing are more important than the questions you and I want answers to. And that's just another way of saying we need to listen carefully to the text, allowing it to set the agenda so we don't mishear what God wants to say to us. The focus of this chapter is not on whether there is a smoking gun or whether there are fingerprints on the mantelpiece. No, rather the focus of Genesis chapter 1 is rather on God Almighty himself. With reference to Genesis chapter one, one writer put it this way. This is not a passage about the how of creation, nor even not even primarily about the why of creation. Rather, it is a passage about the who of creation and is an overture that introduces us to the creator God. The main emphasis here is not the how or the why, it's the who. He simply says, I exist. Don't content yourself with theories or clues of my existence. Don't satisfy yourself with vague notions of who you like to think I might be. Don't make do with unsatisfying and inadequate second-hand knowledge of who I am that will neither challenge your mind nor nourish your soul. Now in the ancient world, Uh, There was no single word to describe everything. And so they spoke in terms of the heavens and the earth. So Genesis 1 verse 1 could equally have written, in the beginning God created the cosmos, or in the beginning God created the universe, or in the beginning God created everything. At which point some of you might be thinking, but Raymond, who created God? Well, one person simply answered this question like this. Once you see that God is eternal, you will never again ask the question, who or what made God? You will see that the question does not make sense. God was already there in the beginning. He existed before anything else. He is both eternal and uncreated. Now if that sounds like a bit of a cop-out... It's worth remembering that those who deny Elohim's existence as recorded in Genesis chapter 1 often themselves believe in that which is both eternal and uncreated. They just call it matter, or energy, or natural law. So it comes down to where one's willing to put one's faith. In impersonal matter. Energy or natural laws, or in an infinitely powerful, self contained, self existent, eternally wise and intelligent and personal Creator God. Either position takes faith. But here is the point according to God's revealed word, the very first verse of the Bible, He exists. And he created everything, whether visible or invisible, near or far, every speck of dust in this universe, every galaxy, every black hole, every star, every planet, including this one, every plant, every tree, every life form, whether on land or on sea, and most especially, you and me, originated in the imagination of this God. In the words of another author, he that is God is not the result of our imagination, We are the result of his. And so with Beethoven's fifth blasting away in the background, it's the only piece of music that I think think fits with this. Dun, 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 dun. Sorry about that. I've always wanted to do that. Genesis 1 verse 1 is saying, meet your maker. And that is what we will do over the next few Sundays as we look at the rest of Genesis chapter 1 and following. But as I draw to a close, what are some of the implications of what we've seen here today? Well, according to the passage that John read for us a few moments ago, Proverbs 8, it was was by wisdom that God created the universe. And the book of Proverbs makes it clear that we will profit greatly if we listen to God's wisdom. I mean, look at everything he's made. Of course, the God of Genesis 1 verse 1 is also the God who speaks in the book of Proverbs. So if you are a scientist here today, wisdom would dictate that you study both the book of nature and the book of scripture if you are to find true truth. Hundreds of years after the book of Proverbs was written, the Apostle Paul was preaching to a group of people in Athens, in Greece. A city not unlike London. And yet to correct something that the Athenians had got wrong. They made the classic mistake, like many religions today, of confining God to shrines and places of worship, while thinking that somehow he needed their help. On the contrary, says Paul, the true and living God is the maker of all things. He does not need our help. No, rather we need his Indeed, it is in and through him that we live and move and are able to take our very next breath. And he will not be placated or fobbed off by a little bit of religion or a bit of money being chucked his way. According to Genesis 1 verse 1, he created everything, which means he owns everything. We hear a lot today, don't we, about human rights, especially when it comes to issues like abortion, euthanasia, Or gender politics. Well what about the rights of this our Creator? Uh, Back in January 1988, on the night I became a, a, a Christian having realized I'd been living a life of rebellion against the God of Genesis 1 verse 1, I had a brown hardback NIV Bible with me in my Hall of Residence in West London. It fell open at Psalm 121, verse 1. And I read these words I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I remember thinking, who better to have on my side, in my corner, than the creator of absolutely everything? I mean, Who can there be that would be more wise and more intelligent and more powerful than the one who existed before all things and who created an entire universe? Who else would you want on your side? I was later to discover, and in many ways I'm still discovering, actually, that in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you and I will ever, ever need.